Welcome, everybody, to this Sunday's edition of The New Standard. As always, the show is hosted by yours truly, Lance Williams, and my partner in crime, Neil Kulong. What's up, Neil? How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I hope you are as well. Um, got to love training camp. You got to love a Steelers game in, I don't know how many hours, but uh, Thursday night, uh, live from Fawcett Stadium on Tom Benson Field in Canton, Ohio, for the Hall of Fame game. Wait a minute. Pause, pause, pause. Rewind. <laughs> the name of the stadium is Fawcett? Is yeah, that, I think so, right? That F-A-W-C-E-T-T, I believe. That's hilarious. Excuse me. Maybe it's maybe it's it's Tom Benson Hall of Fame Stadium. Maybe it's Fawcett Field now. Or no, they just took Fawcett out completely. All right, let's start over. Tom Benson Hall of Fame Stadium in Canton, Ohio, against the Dallas Cowboys for the Hall of Fame game Thursday night before a weekend of Steelers Hall of Fame activity. Excellent. Whoever was in that marketing meeting that figured out it was a good idea to remove Fawcett out of any name, kudos to them. (laughs) They get a raise from this show because I was thinking Fawcett, (laughs) Toilet, I mean, come on, man. You, you, I think you it's a guy's last name. I, I think they're they're trying to honor somebody with that. I don't think they I, I named it for the appliance. I, I I understand. It should just be F something. Yeah, find a different name. It's just one of those names that are uh, <laughs> that are bad. And uh, big up to Lee Payton. Big up to the Steelers freak who's already uh, chomping at the bit at ten o two a.m. Uh, big up to those guys, uh, and we'll, we'll we'll jump into Steelers Freaks uh, uh, comment a little bit later. Before we jump into the program, um, we got a couple of sponsors again. Great dads versus everybody. To those guys out there, I saw those camo shorts on the Instagram feed. Hey man, your boy, you know you can shoot me a pair of those camo shorts. Big up to you. Big up to Shop Supreme Queen. Uh, nothing but Bud Butter, and big up to my guy Charlie Bell. His company assists to score that specializes in sportswear and uniforms. And if you want to check out the program, the program is on all platforms. Um, it's, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, you know, it's on all those podcasts and podcast form as well as the live on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, do a search for Lance Williams or Neil Kulong. And the new standard. Yes, I do know you, Steelers freak, and the name is appropriate. <laughs> and so, before we jump into the topic of the program, and that's Steelers training camp, taking a look at it from a bird's eye view, I want to get your your thoughts on any general news of this week in terms of training camp. Anything uh, sticking out to you, Neil, in terms of lowlights, highlights, winners, losers, um, or if you want to discuss what we just talked about before we jump into the 64,000 foot perspective of training camp. You know, I think the big thing is the arms race in the AFC North, the Baltimore Ravens signing uh, Justin yes. Houston yesterday to a one-year contract, very similar, it seems, uh, to their intentions anyway, is, uh, to what the Steelers did with Melvin Ingram. Uh, you might recall that Justin Houston was a player who was on the Steelers' radar uh, as a potential fit for their defense, uh, probably a one-year signing, the same that they had with Ingram. Whatever it is, the reason that uh, they chose Ingram over Houston, um, me personally, I think I probably would have been okay with either one, but Ingram makes as much sense as Houston does. Um, 
usually when news like that comes out, it's oftentimes spun in such a way that you can kind of tell uh, who's giving the reporter that information. And 99% of the time, it's the player's agent. So uh, for the Houston, for the, the suggestion that Justin Houston signed for, quote, much less uh, to play with the Ravens for the sake of winning a championship, I think is probably puffery uh, by and large. I mean, Houston's a nice player, but it, Ingram showed what the market is for a player of that level. It's about $4 million. And Houston got $1 million, I believe $1 million guaranteed uh, with the $1 million base and incentives to get him up to four. Uh, Ingram is just getting four. So um, it's hard to say that Houston would have turned that down uh, just for the sake of winning a championship. The guy wants to get paid. I mean, that, that's that's just kind of I mean, the yeah. I, mean, I, I love how you say that. I mean, this, I mean, come on, man. Guys like bread. Guys like money. They want to get paid. They understand what this is. They're itching to play football. Camps are starting. Guys want to get back to work and get back to it. So, yeah, guys want to get paid. But anything else this week? Uh, by and large, I think we got a lot of uh, combination of football and shorts as well as football and pads. I think the key thing that – uh, many probably don't want to mention, but it would be remiss of us not to, is the fact that T.J. Watt to this point has not practiced in pads, uh, not in full pads anyway, um, abstaining anyway from uh, contact drills. Whether that is a combination of some type of injury that we don't know about, uh, the desire to keep him fresh considering how long camp is going to be in a four-game preseason schedule while uh, 30 other teams in the NFL only play three, Um that is possible. You have to wonder, though, Lance, if that's not it's something to do with his contract. He is, without question, uh, the the possessor of the most leverage any player not named Ben in Steelers history has had as far as contracts go and the value of those contracts. He is playing into uh, his fifth-year option at about, give or take, $10 million, and he's fixing to get – I don't think it will be very hard for him to get – an Aaron Donald level deal. I think he's going to be looking at 170, 180, somewhere in there over probably five years, maybe six, depending on how it's structured and probably more than anything, the manner in which they would pay him would be so uh, antithetical to what the Steelers have done over the years. They will never have had a contract given to a player uh, with the amount of bonus money that TJ Watt is going to want, the amount of guarantees that he's going to want up front. Um, there are shades of Le'Veon Bell's negotiation in this. And I don't think that people are fully appreciating that because they really like TJ Watt. And I get it. Watt's a great player. That's why Watt deserves to be paid in the way that his peers are currently being paid. The Steelers have never done that. Now, I'm not saying that it's not going to happen. But to me, I think more of the story now is going to be how he gets tagged next year and what he does um, in, in response to that. It's going to be really hard for the Steelers to come up with a deal, uh, to come up with a cash that they're going to need to give Watt up front. And I think that is uh, at least partially associated with why he doesn't have an extension in place. And it could have something to do with the fact that he's not practicing. You know, I love how you you showed your age in a subtle way with your comments, Neil, when you said fixing to. That that's a that's a that's a Pittsburgh sort of thing. And I thought that was a Midwestern thing. Yeah, like fixing to. Like, yeah, I grew up saying fixing to. I don't know, if, <laughs> but I think that's an age thing as well. But I think you hit on a big thing when it comes to TJ. And let me take a step back this way, because sometimes when I say it, you know, fans get upset when I say it this way. TJ Watt is the CEO of Watt Incorporated. When you look at these individuals, they are business entities unto themselves. And their most valuable asset in their business is their body. 
And when you're going into a situation when you're getting 10.8 million, you're the best edge rusher in football. You know what your value is. The market has told you. You you have a great idea of that. You want to protect your greatest asset, which is your body. So it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if it's a combination of everything. They want to preserve his body because they know he's going to play a ton of snaps this year. He wants to preserve his body because he wants to. He knows he's going to play a ton of snaps this year, and he needs to get paid. And he would feel much comf- much more comfortable with the guarantee of some long-term money and some generational money that he'll make in this contract. So I think it's a combination of all those factors. It's like when we feel a little more comfortable around where this contract negotiation is, you know, you may see him, you may see him as we get a little further down in camp to keep some snaps off his body. I think it's a combination of all those things. I've never seen anything in the media where there's an acrimonious relationship between Watt Inc. and the Steelers Inc., so it seems like if it's going to get worked out, it's going to get worked out one way or another. If he's a stealer for the long-term future, you know, he'll just be a stealer for the long-term future. If he's not, I don't think he goes away and it seems like it was some acrimony there and it looks bad. So I think at some point in time, we have to do what a lot of sports fans don't want to do, and that's be patient and just understand that the process is the process. Is there any rookie that stood out this week in camp? Um, as far as the rookies go, I, I think the, the bulk of the hype that we heard surrounds second-round pick Pat Fryermuth, uh, as far as what we would have expected. I mean, Najee Harris is who we thought Najee Harris would be, and right. we're going to continue to see that with him. I'm not even sure that's news anymore. Uh, Fryermuth probably turned a few more heads than, than you might have thought. Um, a lot of chatter as far as what they think his ceiling is, which I, I think is funny for a, a rookie tight end on this team um, in particular. I, I Honestly, Lance, I'd be surprised if he had more than 30 targets this year. But you listen to the fans, and there's one of them on Twitter that said he, he is legitimately one of the better tight end prospects of the last five, ten years. Um, I, I don't know about that, but um, – considering there were he was the second tight end drafted and the first one went four overall he didn't get drafted until the, the middle of the second round later in the second round he's not one of the five best tight ends that we've seen uh, over the last five ten years that's that's nonsense I think he can develop into be a decent player but as as Mike Tomlin was sure to point out to the assembled media who were around every time he would make a play Tomlin set out great can you block that, to me, is really what the story of Pat Fryermuth's rookie season is going to be. They need him to block. They have guys on this team that can catch the ball. They need him to block. They did not have anybody blocking at that position last year, and they, they drafted him to be able to do that right now and continue to develop into a player. I'm not saying that he's not going to be, but let's pump the brakes as far as him making highlight catches and things like that because he's, he's not going to have the opportunity to do that often, I don't think. They're going to use him six, seven yards down the field to catch passes here and there. By and large, though, if he can block the edge and outside zone, if he can release and, and get up the field and get to a linebacker or a defensive back coming down in outside zone, he's going to be an effective player. Um, that's where they need him to be this season. So I, I think it's a good step forward as far as you know him getting the opportunity to do that and the coach is you know, stressing to him that he really needs to do that. That's the message that, that he needs to receive and he needs to put the work in. Um, He's a rookie. You know, rookies tend to not block the tight end position when they come into the NFL. We've, we've seen it, 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 it uh, I don't know how many times, but 
all of them pretty much. He is not the athlete Eric Ebron is. He is not the athlete Kyle Pitts is. They're not going to be running him down the scene seam 15 to 18 yards. He's not that kind of player. So just accept that and look for what his real value is, which is going to be very beneficial to the team. If they have a guy who can block on that edge and they can run outside zone the way they've been successful in the past, they're going to have a much more fluid and much more uh, comprehensive offense than what we saw last year. Contrary to popular opinion, it's not as simple as, as the offensive coordinator calling the plays. You need to be able to run plays, okay? They weren't able to do that last year because of a massive deficiency among their tight end position. And Friermuth was brought in to help plug that gap uh, this year and, and continue to develop into a player. And to that point, Steelers Freak says Fire Moose. I love the spelling. We'll get more snaps than Ebron by the end of the season. Count on it. I, I don't know. Okay. I, I think, you know, okay. th- th- this, th- this, this is a passing league. And if you can't attack the seams with the tight end position and stretch the field and elevate and lift linebackers to create horizontal space, I just don't see uh, you making a huge impact in the passing game. But let's get to the topic of the show. And that's taking a look at Steelers training camp from a bird's eye view. And the reason why I wanted to take a step back and do this is because I wanted to piggyback on your experience as having been to training camp before in the past. And I think a lot of times when we as fans that don't have a lens to it, I think we have an idea of what camp is, but I think we don't have a a true picture of what camp is. I mean, we see players playing. You know, we see guys getting in shape. We see camp stuff. We see bits and pieces, but I don't think we see a cohesive picture of what training camp is. Now, from a very uh, zoomed out perspective, a 64,000 foot perspective, what's just the overall purpose of training camp? And you can and you can answer this from a from a couple of ways, from a coaching perspective and from a player perspective, meaning veterans and or rookies. I'll. I'll answer that with this kind of um, dual story. And this, this happened simultaneously at, at one training camp that I was at. And I remember it toward the end. It was probably two weeks into it. It was a 90 degree day, sun beating down. And those of you who have been to, to Latrobe um, at, at St. Vincent College, you, you know the bowl-like structure that the fields are in. And how there there is no shade anywhere except for the canopies that they put up uh, in the corners. Everybody who's out there is baking in this sun. And you can feel the level of intensity and competitiveness go up as camp goes on because guys are beaten up, they're tired, they're sunburned. It, it's, it's a grind. I can see why, uh, you know, I think for obvious reasons, why players usually hate training camp. There's a lot that they have to do in a short amount of time. But this one particular afternoon um, – the best way I can describe this, and I don't think I'm going to get in trouble for saying it now. I would have at the time. Bud Dupree seemed to have picked a fight with all five starting offensive linemen at the same time. For whatever reason that was, you couldn't, you know, you can't hear them. You're not allowed to be close enough to hear what they're saying. But there was there was some friction between them. They were upset. Um, I did hear one offensive lineman. I'm not going to say his name, but he happens to be a, a morning show host in Tennessee now. Call him Bud the Dud. And that set him off even more. So Dupree was was you know getting into a scrum with all five offensive linemen, and all five offensive linemen were, were jumping on him immediately. I don't know who breaks up that fight or how it happened, but um, they sent Butt off. You know, not like a disciplinary way, more like you've had enough, just go get out of here. 
uh, practice ended probably five minutes after that. And D'Angelo Williams took uh, the running backs, and there were some others who followed him, and they started doing uh, meat grinders, whatever you call that drill, basically down to a line, back, down to a deeper line, back, uh, running right. after practice. We used to call them suicides. Yeah, suicides, I, I, whatever you, you would refer to them as. Ladders, uh, I think that's what we called them in high school. But it, it's it's a tough drill at the end of a practice, uh, especially on a day like that. But then they added an element to it. You would run there, you'd run to a line, touch it, go back, and then they put like a pylon at the middle. You had when you got back from when you got back to your original line, they ran in a dead sprint, probably thirty yards away to this pylon, and touched it or whatever it was. It looked like the most horrific conditioning drill I've ever seen. And my point in saying all this is, to me, training camp at that level, it's the scrimmaging, the execution against your teammates, because that's who you're going up against, an effort to to get better. There's a level of competition that gets bred from that, and with it, camaraderie. You know, the entire offensive line is standing up to Bud Dupree, who just went nuts that day in practice for whatever reason. And then you have uh, leadership opportunities, a veteran like D'Angelo Williams, um, getting guys out to, to run after practice to, to get their conditioning up, to get their wind up, uh, along with just the physical attributes of doing all those things, making you a better athlete, uh, assuming that you are you know in, in the shape that you need to be anyway. Um, you put all those things together and mix in your technical uh, pursuits, you know the, the, the work that you put in to make yourself a better player functionally. Um, from a coach's perspective, it's seeing – all the players and evaluate them, evaluating them. Um, again, those who have been to Latrobe remember that the crane that's like 40, 50 feet up in the air, uh, standing in, in bird's eye position, filming all of practice. The coaches then go back and review all of that and go over it with the players. Their decisions uh, to cut, to keep, to extend even to an extent are made from the lens of that camera. It's not just your preseason games. That's the practice stuff that they're talking about. And they go all out. I can tell you that as well. The, the sessions that they have where fans aren't present, they're going all out. It, it's it's an NFL atmosphere. And I think some of that, too, is to welcome the new guys into the physical uh, nature of the NFL. I've, I've been on the sidelines of, of high division one. I've been on the sidelines of the NFL. I can tell you right now, college football is the most overrated amateur experience it, it, as far as the quality and the talent of the players. It, it, well, overrated, I guess, isn't the right word. It's overhyped. The yeah. players in college are not nearly as good as people think that they are. You see them in the pros. It's it's mind-boggling how fast all of them move, how hard they're hitting each other. Uh, they're constantly yelling at one another. The level of communication, it, 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 it's pure chaos. You don't know how it works, but it does. Those are the kinds of things that they're working on in camp. Um at the 64,000-foot level, what I would say is, by and large, they're learning how to be professional players or they're they're continuing to hone their craft as professional players. And there's a lot of different things that goes into that. And the, the veterans are really the ones that kind of lead uh, a lot of the effort. They lead a lot of um, what's going on in the drills, uh, the level of competition, when to, to dial it up, when to back it off. The veterans are a lot more involved in that process, I think, than people think as well. So let's take a step at let's let's look at that again and, and, and let and let's drill down into you know a couple particular important pieces of the process. I'll give you an example from my experience. When I was a head coach varsity sports in high school, 
I mean, you know, no, no way it's anywhere in any comparison to, you know, college or professional coaching. But every time we would come back together, it felt like just from a coaching perspective, I had to relearn my coaches. I had to relearn my tendencies of my coaches, what I think they would want to do in certain situations. So it was an acclimation period for us getting together as well and just re getting back together and honing all of that communication and just that subtle stuff that coaches and all that different, those different pieces speak to the purpose of training camp uh, from, from that perspective, from a coaching staff perspective, is there a lot of, you know, reacclimation or different things that go on from a coaching perspective at that 64,000 foot level when they get back to coaching or, or getting back to camp? I, I would say it's probably not all that dissimilar from the players. Um, the coaches are meeting throughout the year. They're evaluating uh, the talent that they have and, and putting together what their plans are going to be for camp, the things that they want to work on, what they're installing, what they're going to teach, how they're going to teach it. And they're doing all of that really at, at the, the oversight of the head coach and at probably the direction of the general manager. When all of that happens, it's great inside of a boardroom that's air conditioned. When they're out on the field in, in the sweat and, and, you know, pain and competition that's going on around them, how they react to that, how they're, they're noticing things in a, a very fluid environment, in my right. opinion, is what makes them coaches. You have right. to be able to dissect all of that with, you know, not literally, but explosions going on around you. Cause there are so many different things. There are so many different guys who are there. You have to be able to instruct them on what they need to do to a position where they can earn their position uh, on their own. They're not going to help them do that necessarily, but they want to put them into a position to succeed. Um, I'll back that up with another story now that I'm being that guy. Um, John Mitchell, Steelers defensive line coach uh, at, at this point, now basically defensive line coach emeritus with, with the Steelers, legend in the game. If you talk to anybody uh, who, who knows football over the last 30, 40 years, John Mitchell is going to be a guy that they're going to bring up as one of the best position coaches that the NFL has ever seen. Um, Mitchell, Mitchell has high accolades from any player that he's ever coached. For whatever reason, this particular day, it was his mission to get inside Dan McCuller's head. And he, Mitchell was all over him about everything. Um, it, it, they're also not the, the Hollywood style yelling, you know, type of coach freaking out for five straight minutes, soliloquying on the sideline. It, it's short. It's quick. It's in verse. No, do it again. Damn it. No. What are you doing? It, they're, they're really quick with their instruction because they're very efficient with their time. They know they right. only have a certain amount of time and the players only have a certain amount of energy. When their energy level is down, they're not as receptive to, to coaching. They can't be, you know, really taught, right. trained. Right. So McCullers, uh, I forget who's going up against, but McCullers, is, you might remember, is a large, large man. Very, um, Quite blocked out the sun. The biggest he was guy huge. ever. Yeah, football. he was absolutely huge. He was going up against like a, a, a backup, backup guard or something like that. Dude had McCullers probably had four inches and 70 pounds on the guy. And it's not that he was really small. It's just McCullers was that big. And this guy whipped McCullers in the drill. Like he got inside of him. McCullers just, he, he stood up. He wasn't really putting his effort into it. Mitchell ran over, grabbed him by the face mask and said something to the effect of, are you going to bleep and show me something or do you need to leave? And kind of pushed him off and went back to where he was going. 
that poor kid, whoever it was that had to line up against Dan McCullers in that next snap. Oh my God. McCullers absolutely destroyed him. Just completely walked him back where he was going, put him on the ground. And then McCullers got up at the same time that, that the kid was getting up and McCullers shoved him to the ground again. Fight broke out. People were going everywhere. Um, you have to be able to, to bring this back to, to a point. I swear I'm making one. As, as the head coach and the general manager of a team, you need to have faith in your coaches that they have a plan, that they're going to go do certain things, and they can handle the aftermath of whatever it's going to be. Because fights are a part of camp. They're, those are things that are going to come up. Tempers are going to flare. You have to know what buttons to push at what time, and you have to be able to, to be comfortable in diffusing any situation like that. So if Mitchell's plan that day was to get in Dan McCullers' head and, and try to draw out the, the freakish ability that he had, Dan McCullers was a really good player on a couple snaps, you know, maybe not throughout his career, but he showed a lot of, of potential of being an absolute badass defensive tackle. He just wasn't that kind of a guy all around. And Mitchell was was really trying to get him to, to, to activate that level now if he's going to do it against an nfl center versus a guy that i'm sure didn't make the team and you know didn't take another snap again probably telling this story to his buddies in the bar right now somewhere if if that was his plan he executed that plan very well um the the aftermath of it wasn't that big of a deal he made that point In, in in relation to mitchell to tomlin um, it's probably pretty easy. Tomlin's going to have a lot of faith in John Mitchell. But when you have a new coach, which the Steelers have had, I think this is right. something that has not been talked about a whole lot. They only have two coaches on their staff right now who have been there longer than, than a season, and that's Tomlin and Keith Butler. So between that, you've got, well, two years if you want to count Canada. I mean, in their current positions. Right, right, right. right. There's a lot of new coaches there. That's a lot of coaching that Tomlin has to do among the coaches. They have to get right. them in line with what needs to be done. They have to get them to draw plans at Tomlin's direction and make sure that it's the right way to go about it with with whatever player. It, it's it's not an easy job. It, it, it's all, again, in a completely fluid environment. There are drills going on in different spots. There are different players who are practicing versus not practicing. The position coaches are the ones who are in charge of those things, and they have to communicate that to the head coach. They have to kind of liaise with uh, the trainers to make sure they know who's not on the field and who is. It, there's a, a, a very high level of management and organization that goes into those positions that people probably don't know about. I want to drop it down to a little bit more of a granular perspective, get it down to possibly about 32,000 feet. And there was a coach that you brought up when you were talking about the coaches and what they go through in their preparation for training camp and what they're doing. And a largely what I take from that, and, and in general at the 64,000 foot level, trust is being established at a, ver- at, at a variety of different positions and different things that are going on in camp. Let's look at the offense and let's look at Matt Canada. And a lot has been made about Matt Canada uh, being the offensive coordinator, the new offense and so on and so forth. Now I've been told, uh, by several pros, particularly on the offensive side of football, that at camp, at some point in time, every particular play is practiced at least once. It may not be twice. It may not be three times, but every play has gone through at least once. You run through it once to get a feel for the play. We often hear uh, talk about installations, installations of offense, installations of defense. Describe What's going on from an offensive perspective and a defense perspective, but start with the offense in terms of an installation of an offense. Just what does that mean and what's going on at training camp? Um, that That's a, a really 
broad question. Um, I would say this, you have, it, it's probably like a, a very condensed graduate level class of engineering. At the beginning of it, you're going to talk at that 32,000 foot level, what you're trying to do, what you're looking to accomplish, the concepts that you're putting into it. But I, I say this and I'm not trying to be a smart ass, but it's not Madden, okay? You don't have plays that you just select and put in. You need to have cohesion with that, and you need to figure out what plays your team runs the best, what plays that you you feel you're going to need to run at some point during the season, and from that, figure out kind of what your base is going to be. Um, I would say this. It's really interesting that whoever you spoke to said that they'll practice every single play at least one time. That's a great way to describe it because – NFL teams don't run the same play more than if, if they are really, really set on what they're doing, they might run that six times a game. That's it. And the example that I can think of is uh, Cincinnati back in, was it 2014 or 2015? Might've been both. In fact, at Cincinnati, uh, the Steelers and really Le'Veon Bell and David DeCastro ran the Bengals oh, off my, the field oh, oh my with the same play. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my goodness. I can see the picture of him. Oh man, getting outside to see gap. Oh my goodness, it was it was the unreal. Edge. The, the level unreal. of court, and they were they were on. I mean, it was just it, it was poetry in motion. That that's what a running game is supposed to look like. It was beautiful, and the Bengals couldn't do a thing. They to stop it, and they didn't. You know, the, the Steelers were tied at the beginning of the fourth quarter and won by three touchdowns. You and know, Haley, and Haley kept calling it. Yeah, and that <laughs> that beautiful. play that play happened to be a staple that the Steelers typically run. You know, the the, the pulling guard wrong the edge. Uh, they call it twenty two double. A lot of different ways that you could describe a, a a play like that, depending on what your structure is and how your terminology is organized. But it, by and large, they might have run that play more often than other plays. But it's not like they spend all of their time running just these things. Or let's sit back and work on all of this. They have one shot. Uh, to to do it on the field. And that's why. And if you look at their their uh, uh, schedule, you can probably find a, a Steelers training camp schedule or any team's training camp schedule somewhere. It's dedicated down to the minute for about sixteen hours in the day, something like that, including meal times and, and you know like a fifteen minute downtime period somewhere. They are meeting with uh, not just special teams, but their position groups, their offense, and as a team. And when they're in those meetings, they're talking about these concepts. They don't get the, the the physical reps for every single play, but they're going over everything. Um, their job is to become students. That's why Belichick says this all the time. If you're big, you can run, and you're smart, I'll find a way to use you. That's the way they look at it. it it's, it's far less about all out, well, this guy can run really fast. Let's get him on the field. How smart of a player is he? Can they absorb everything that we need him to know to get out on the field to succeed? Because we simply don't have the time to go over everything that we need to go over. We're only going to run this play in training camp once. We might run it to win the division in week 17, as far as we know. You might remember that. That was a play they hadn't run. We didn't see that when, when Antonio Brown caught that short of the goal line and had to stretch to get in. They did not run that play. I, I I'm trying to remember what, what the exact reason of it was, but they run variations of all plays. And in the game, in the moment, what they'll do is change something. There'll be a little variation to it. Uh, a lot of the times, those aren't the plays that they scripted, that they practiced leading into the game. Uh, practices during the season, large, largely, are they practice 15 plays that they're going to run at the beginning of a game. 
in in even situations. You get into specialty situations, and that's different. Like first and goal, they're not calling the big pass play that they had planned to, to be called for the seventh play of the game. But the the point being, they're going over all these things so they can be prepared to install them during the season. If they're going to run this this week, they've gone over it. They've talked about it. They've drilled it. You might not get the physical reps that you would want, although they do quite a bit of that in training camp. You don't always have that opportunity. So they need to expose everybody who's there to everything that they might need to lean on that season. Canada's job is to drop those plays as a base. This is our foundation. This is what we're going to, to go off of. Everything we're going to do is going to come out of these concepts. So from that, what they're they're looking to do is establish kind of the general philosophy of what they're looking to do on plays. Generally speaking, this team last year was 11 personnel. That might change this year. I would think anyway, they're going to run a lot more 12 personnel than they used to. So what do they need to do to understand um, where they stand on the line, where the ball is being placed, and what that means for which receiver who's going to go on the field at what time? Uh, how are they going to change those positions out? These are all things that are are separate from the play call itself. So they have to know what they're doing and what their role is in all of these situations. And those are the kinds of things that you really drill on um, during training camp and then during practice during the season. Speak to Steelers Freak's comment about Canada has base plays. He is introducing to the team that has simple branches and sequels that are enough to keep defenses off balance. I think that's the goal of every offensive coordinator from every college and pro team. It, 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 of course, you know, Matt Canada did not introduce that concept. It's not original to him. It's not unique to him. Um, and on top of that, I'm sorry, but we don't know that. We, we don't know what Matt Canada does at, at an NFL level. He was not the offensive coordinator last season. Um, he didn't create the jet sweep concept. All these things are, it, it's more, Steelers fans thinking that Sean McVay is coming in to, to take over uh, their their play calling and their their, scheme, their their schemes and their personnel. That's what dictates what plays you're calling. Who do you have? Uh, what do you want to use these guys for? There's a lot that any offensive coordinator can do. They, they've got some talent on offense. Um, you can't just say this guy's a tight end, therefore he needs to be on the field a bunch. You can't just say – we have four receivers. We need to get four receivers onto the field to do a variety of different things. It, it comes down to what what they primarily want to accomplish and what the players that they have are capable of doing. From that, they're going to find out what everybody can be really successful with and how they can scheme up ways to make those things happen throughout the course of 70 plays in a game. That's a lot. And a lot of it, you're, and I don't want to say you're drawing it up on the fly, but a lot of times you're adjusting to what a defense is doing, which is not something that you saw on film leading into that week. So it, it's, yes, you, you want to have a base. When I think of this, I think of Mike Shanahan and Kyle Shanahan does the same thing. You want to have a base 12, 15 plays that you're scripting uh, to go into every game. Shanahan was big on that. He, he spoke of that a lot. And Shanahan was one of the most type A, nerdy head coaches you'll ever see. He was extremely detail-oriented. He wanted to do these things this way all the time. It was much more about scheme than personnel for him. Uh, Kyle, I think, takes that into a different direction. But at the same time, they have the discipline of knowing we're going to run these 12 plays. These are the teams that you see that come out of the gates smoking. They're, they're going to score on their first drive. They put all of it out there. From there, it's a question of how good they are in, in adjusting to it. 
Last year, what we saw with the Steelers was a team that didn't really seem to have a great script down. I don't know if they scripted or not. They weren't good early, but they were really good in the second half. The second half offense usually did far better than the first half did. A lot of that is the adjustments then. Okay, we saw that they did this. We're going to do this now. We're going to change that. Those are two separate philosophies of coaching. And to to some degree, both are going to be successful. And to some degree, they're going to both piss fans off. It's really hard to be dominant at the NFL level for four quarters. Okay. It's just hard to do that. Yeah. Um, Eventually your opponent's going to catch up to you. So in, in a lot of ways, you have to be able to react, but you also have to plan and expect what your opponent is going to do. There's a lot that goes into it. So Matt Canada he doesn't carry around his Madden playbook and say, we're going to do these things. He has to evaluate the personnel that he has and draw up uh, based on his experience and his concepts. I'm not saying that he's a blank slate or anything, but what he's going to do is going to be for the betterment of the team, you know, for the team that he has, not the college team that he used to call plays for. It's what he has in front of him. There are going to be similarities and things, but I don't think Matt Canada would even say at, at this point in his career that he has a quote unquote system of anything. Let's see what they're capable of doing uh, with who they have um, and, and see how he's going to call it. Because I'm willing to bet it's going to be vastly different in, in week one versus week 15. Things are going to have to change. That's the NFL. You can get away with that in college. You can't do it in the NFL. Let me answer this real quickly before I ask you a similar question on the defensive side of football. How concerned should Steeler fans be about uh, some stories that have come out about Ben Uh, and some inconsistencies between what Ben has said and what Tomlin has said about the new verbiage of the offense and Ben learning the verbiage (laughs) and picking it up. Because that, because I mean, that's, that stuff has seemed pretty funny, you know, from my knowledge, but please explain some of that uh, to the listeners. Back in my behind the steel curtain days, I remember when Todd Haley was hired and what was Ben's comment that it was like reading the Rosetta stone, something to that effect. Um, Ben knows Ben's a, a very, very smart guy. Ben's a very literary guy. He knows how to speak uh, to the media to say nothing at all when he when he speaks on certain topics. He's not going to reveal anything about terminology, but he's also the type that loves um, subterfuge. He loves to give off the idea that nobody knows what they're doing and we got a lot of work that we need to do and all that is true. They know what they're doing. I mean, it, it's not as if Ben has never heard of these concepts. And at the same time, at the pro level, they all know what goes into this. Um, you call different things different things, but by and large, what that really means is, and this 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 was an old high school ploy. When he wanted a motion left, it was Lucy or, um, I don't know, I can't think of whatever it was. But it's an L word that means go left. That's the difference in terminology a lot of the times. Um an offense, too, is how you categorize and group different uh, calls for different plays. You, you look at the NFL, you see uh, Z right, X trip, slant, Y, monkey, banana, all that stuff. All those things are done in order of it, whether that's – it depends on the offense, whether that's the, the cadence, the receiver route combinations, uh, the offensive line blocking techniques – uh, what the running back does, the order of that is, is really what the difference is. All those terms mean different things to different people. When you talk about intelligence of a quarterback, it's the quarterback's job to know what all those things are in those sequences. That's why they get paid the most. The most successful ones are the ones that grasp those concepts and are able to channel that to the team uh, uh, seamlessly. So by and large, defense 
I don't think is all that much different than that. Uh, it's just usually a little bit more simplified. You don't have, you know, because you're reacting to what's going on. Uh, you don't have to plan that out. But you are going to call out your defensive line techniques. You are going to call out your coverage uh, for your, your secondary as well as your linebackers. Um, all those things come into it, and it's a matter of learning it. Um, when Ben Roethlisberger uh, signed his, his new contract, I'm sure one of the first things they did was get him – call it a glossary of terminology that they're going to use. His job is in the off season to study that, get to know it. And they're communicating with each other all the time. You know, they, they have group texts nowadays. Uh, they're always talking about different things. The players that want to be successful are the ones that are asking questions. They're knowing all this stuff when they go into it. OTAs is largely for that kind of stuff. When they get together as players without the coach's oversight, they're talking about terminology. They're talking about uh, different situations when they might call this or that or the other thing. Um, <clears throat> one of the great things with Ben, and you, you see this a lot with him during OTAs, he's kind of motioning to different receivers at after a, a ball is thrown somewhere, whether it's successful or not. He's telling them what he's looking at in those situations. I want you to cut in versus out, do this instead of that. Those are non-playbook things. Those are really kind of tendencies that um, are beyond terminology. And I think Ben has always been that sort of guy. Uh, ben and Antonio Brown, they, they joked about this back in the day, but they created routes. They wrote up their own stuff. They kind of just made their own thing out of it. I remember I wrote an article once on this. Um, some of you might remember this, and you can check me on the year. I'm not sure what it was, but I'm pretty sure it was against um, – I think it was against Cleveland. It wasn't on Joe Hayden, though. It was on the other cornerback, whether dog they had on that team. Maybe it was Joe Hayden. Uh, either way, it was third and eight. Everybody in the stadium knows the ball's going to Antonio Brown. Brown ran some type of route in which he almost made like a figure four out of it. He went to the stick. He cut back in and then crossed back over from the sideline. And the ball literally went straight through where the defender was a half second before it. In other words, the defender played the route that he thought he was defending absolutely perfectly, except Ben threw it to a spot that just made no sense for him to throw. And it hit Brown between the eight and the four. They planned that. That was that was their plan going in. Brown took that, ran 70 yards, I think, inside the five, and they, they kicked the field goal to win. Stuff I, like that I, I is what I you work on. Game. I, where think it, I, I think I was, it was awesome. It was a great play. It was just an absolutely is, phenomenal play. Is, is that the game before they went out to San Francisco? It might have been. It was toward the end of the year. Yeah, I, I want to I I, I say I was it was 2014, game. maybe 2013, but probably 2014. I was at that game. And ben got. I think Ben got hurt that game. He was pretty banged up that game, hurt his knee that game. He was, he was always hurt. And then San Francisco yeah. – San Francisco put him out for a quarter, and then he came back Willis Reed style and yeah. finished yeah. off the 23 loss. To, <laughs> I, I, I happened to go to both of those games in back-to-back weekends. I happened to be in Pittsburgh that weekend for a funeral uh, for my uncle, and then I went to the game two weeks later in San Francisco. That was the uh, blackout game. Yep. Which which was yep. I was at that game, which was which was ridiculous because Candlestick <laughs> is a dump. And it has little small screens. But let's flip to the defensive side of football. And is there any difference in the installation process when you have a defense, unlike the offense with the new coordinator, you know, you got new pieces up front in the offensive line for an experienced defense where you have a lot of similar pieces, you have the same coordinator. Um, is the installation process a little bit different? 
when they come to camp, are they more advanced in terms of the process? Can they do different things because it's a more cohesive group, same coaches, same players? What does the installation process look like different from a very top level for an experienced defense as opposed to Canada's offense coming in as a new coach, new offensive line? What is, what's the difference in those two? Well, first and foremost, you can never downplay continuity and experience um, within offense, defense, special teams, wherever. The more guys that you have that are used to doing the things that you're doing, you're going to tend to play better. Um, in my opinion, I, there, there's plenty of evidence to back that up. Uh, Butler's job, in my opinion, a little bit easier <laughs> this year probably than than Canada's is. Um, <clears throat> you get great veteran players, not even just veteran players, great veteran players. Uh, your Cam Haywards, your Stefan Tuitz. Um, TJ Watt is clearly probably the best defender in the league. Um, those guys know what they're doing and they know how to play together. Devin Bush has has enough experience now. He can climb into that group. Um, Joe Hayden is, is an NFL-savvy quarterback. Minka Fitzpatrick is one of the best players in the game. They, they know what they're doing together. They have that kind of continuity. So the coaches don't have to coach around that a whole lot. I think maybe you might make the argument that challenge existed for them back in uh, 2019 when they first acquired Minka. Uh, as the season went on, Minka didn't have a training camp with them. They had to adjust to a lot of the things that he was going to do. He had to adjust to what they're doing. They had to do all that on the fly. That's tough. That That's not an easy job for a coach. The installation is where you kind of hammer out those sorts of details, uh, what you're asking everybody to do, what that means, and everyone has to help everybody else. So that's why you have position group meetings as well as, as uh, defensive meetings. Going over those things, it's as simple as, Let's say it's you know third and five situations. This is probably the type of defense we're going to call. What's your responsibility in this and why? Um, they have tests that they give, uh, quizzes each week to, to each player that can largely determine whether or not they're going to play in that game because um, the game plan isn't going to be the same. You know, this team runs the ball really well, but the next team doesn't, and they throw really well. You're going to have two different defenses for that. The standard is the standard. I think is a, 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 it's it's a great slogan. It's a great way to to show general leadership. But when one guy goes down, you're not going to do the same thing that you asked that guy to do. If Micah Fitzpatrick gets hurt, you're not asking whoever it is that they brought in to play like Micah Fitzpatrick. You're going to do different things. Um, any defensive game you've seen in the Steelers in the Ryan Clark era after he stopped playing at mile high, they didn't do the same. They didn't ask Ryan Mundy to be the same player. So there, there are different things that you do based on personnel that's in there, but you still need to know uh, the assignments of everybody that's above you and below you. You need to be able to, to, to play within that. That's the kind of stuff that they're talking about. Um, at the same token, just like the offense, it might be a situation in which they're doing something different than we thought. So we need to adjust. Here's what they're doing. We're going to change it based on this, but that all comes from that foundation. Um, we do this set of things. Well, this is what we've practiced. This is what we've drilled. We expect them to do this. They're not doing that, so we need to, to switch it over to this. We're going to have you go over here instead. We're going to mix them up with this because this guy isn't paying attention over there. These are all things that are made um, based on the experience that you have playing together, the experience that you have communicating among one another, and having drilled your foundation, the thing, your bread and butter, your fastball, these things we do well, we know that we do well, we're going to branch off of that based on what the right. opponent is doing. Those are the adjustments that everybody talks about. 
you know, you get into, well, you need to adjust in the second half and all cliches like that. It's a matter of knowing what the other team is doing and what you can do within your structure to be able to fix that. If it's something that you can't figure out, you've probably got a problem with your coaching. Um, if it's something that your players just aren't understanding, you've probably got a problem with your coaching and your player. Uh, it, it could be any one of a lot of different things, up to and including the other teams just kicking your ass. You know, right. you, you brought up that right. San Francisco game. San Francisco was a really good team that you hear. They oh, won that game 20 to 3. And part of that excellent. is Ben was hurt and Ben didn't play. There wasn't a thing the Steelers were going to do to win that game. And they 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 played a hell of a game defensively. Just offensively, they weren't going to move the ball. It, it was a great team. It's not a question of not adjusting because not all teams are equal. It's not a video game. You're not just going up against a computer simulation. They're responding to what you're doing as well. And it, it gets to be, uh, to use the cliche, a chess match between uh, the other coach and your coach. And a lot of times... All pieces aren't created equal. They can have a lot more strength than you. There might not be a whole lot that you can do. There are certain situations that you need to win if you're going to have any chance to win the game, and you've already lost <laughs> that game. I remember right. it because it, it didn't feel like it was that big of a deficit, but San Francisco just kicked their ass. I think they they turned it over twice inside the 10. Um, every time they got the ball, they held it for six-plus minutes. They were a really good team that year, and that's, yeah, that that's not just, a question of Tomlin being yeah. outcoached. He just doesn't have the ability to do what Harbaugh could do in that game. Yeah, that was the start of San Francisco um, being a very good football team when they had Bowman. I can't remember who was the other inside linebacker. That yeah, they had Alvin early. Smith on the edge of that team yeah, along with Justin they, Smith on the Justin other side. Who, who was Patrick the Willis. Patrick, Patrick Willis, Willis yes. was the guy they had next to Bowman. Yeah, they had Willis they were and huge. Bowman. San Francisco yeah. was just a dominant team. You want to talk about a 3-4 defense that was run to perfection? The middle of the last decade, San Francisco teams were were – unreal i mean they yeah, were they, so they, well coached they, they, great they, units great players let me ask you one last question in terms of um the installation process with the defense and then we'll take a look at just a brief look at uh thursday's game coming up would this be the time in which the steelers defense from an installation perspective builds uh new roles for players on defense a lot has been said about minka fitzpatrick is he going to continue to play you know, that high, that really top-down safety level, really far away from the line of scrimmage? Um, will there be more versatility? Will he blitz? If there's different roles for a particular defensive player, are they going to get defined and worked out in camp? I'll say this. Um, everything <clears throat> that is going on in camp is the result of Mike Tomlin having planned out every minute of every hour of every day that they're at camp. If they wanted to do that, they would put time in to do that. So it, it's not like they woke up today and because they read Twitter, they decide that this is what they want to do. They will have planned to do that. Specifically speaking, I understand that, that that's not the question that you're asking, but specifically, uh, as far as Minka goes, they brought him in initially. He became the best you know, deep middle safety in the NFL. Um they played him really with no variation to that in his second year, and he's still the best deep middle safety in the NFL. I don't understand why you'd change that. Um, yeah, he can he can impact he can impact eleven players in the field doing what he's doing. I don't know why they need him to cover somebody. Find somebody else to cover him. <laughs> doesn't right. need to be doesn't need to be Minka. He's not your nickel. Okay, he shouldn't be your nickel. You can find a nickel. You cannot find Minka Fitzpatrick anywhere else. So 
keep him deep that cuts off a, a huge amount of field and it creates offense because they want to dare throw at him. He's going to take it away. He's done it. I don't know how many times he, he won the Baltimore game because of where he was on the field. Uh, he, he, he's a great instinctive player. I don't see any reason to, to mess with that. Um, <clears throat> why he wants to do that. My guess, honestly, because he wants to make sure he's going to get paid. Um, I was going to say money. <laughs> I don't blame him for that. But if, if I'm Kevin Colbert, what I'm saying is, we need you to do this. We recognize your value. You're going to be the highest paid, okay? We'll figure it out, but we need you to do this. Um, that's general management. That's coaching. You have to factor those types of things in. And maybe that's what's going on with T.J. Watt right now. I don't know. But um, moving on to other things, it, the idea of specialty things are going to be planned and well in advance. They're plans that they probably put in uh, ahead of free agency, if they have ideas in mind of players that they want to target to do different things, their jottings on a cocktail napkin that they had the middle of last season. It'd be great if we had a player that could do something like this, wherever the idea came from, they will have thought about it, researched it, made sure that they had the personnel uh, dug into other coaches who have had success doing different things, maybe brought them in as, as a consultant that we don't know about. That kind of thing happens a lot. You'd be surprised the amount of people that you'll see inside of, of a, a building like that that you're not allowed to talk about. Those types of things are, are all planned well in advance. So it's not as if they're just going to come up with this idea now. It Honestly, it's too late now. There are too many things to do. Right. Small variations they can do, but they're not barring injury. And even then, it's probably a, a scenario that they've planned out already. They've talked about already. Barring injury, uh, they have a plan for Mika Fitzpatrick this year. These are the things that they're going to want him to do. If that includes dropping down into the box, then it does, and they will have worked on that. We won't see that until the season. There's no way they're going to show that in the preseason. But it, it is possible they do have those kinds of things in mind. Usually, though, they're triggered by some type of event. And to your point, the reason why I know for sure, because I've heard guys tell me that they have plans for them, but the other reason why I know that happens for sure is it helps guys prepare in the offseason yeah, for what exactly. their roles are exactly. going to be. So it's, it, it's, it's a symbiotic thing. One plus two, one plus one equals two. You know, we want you to do this this year, so you know, I, I will incorporate. <laughs> we need you to put on training. five pounds of muscle because exactly. we're going to have you be close to the have line. You. Exactly. So it, it, it works all together. Um, and going back to a point that you made about Fryermuth about targets around getting about 30 targets um, while you were talking about that. I just looked up James Washington, tar Washington's targets from last year, you know, because you made the comment. And of course it's true that, you know, they have other guys that are slated to catch the football that they want to catch the football. James Washington only had 56 targets last year. And so, you know, when you say 30 targets for fire moves, it might be more like 15. So that wouldn't surprise me. You know, it really it, wouldn't. <laughs> there's a limited amount of targets. You're talking about a second round draft pick in James Washington, who has great run after the catch, great hands, makes great plays when he's thrown the ball, does not drop passes. And the hilariousness about drop passes this week. <laughs> I, that was just way, like, way too you know, many reporters in the stands. Way too many reporters in the stands. That's what. But that's just, Come on. that's just <laughs> an example of the limited amount of touches that certain guys are going to have an opportunity to get because you want other guys to get touches and you're only going to have about yeah. 70 snaps. Uh, but one thing I want to switch to in terms of the hall of fame game that's coming on this week, I'm looking at um, corners. I'm, I'm looking at the nickel corner position and how are they going to sort that out? 
The other thing I'm looking at on the offensive side of the ball, the one thing I'm looking at the offensive side of the ball, I want to look at the offensive line. I, I just want to look at pass pro, and I want to see if the offensive line looks more physical, if they're moving guys off the line of scrimmage, and I want to look at the rookie center. What are the couple, What are the things that you're looking at in this Hall of Fame game this week? I think that the corners are going to be a lot of fun. I, I like James Pierre as a player. I know that we've we've uh, kind of poked some fun at him in the past just simply because he was a nobody that everyone was making out to be the next, you know, Rod Woodson. But uh, he, he's done pretty well by all accounts at camp so far. I think um, it, more than anything, it creates options. I think that's always a good thing for a team to have. You remember, it wasn't that long ago, not too many years ago, that uh, Will Gay started on the outside and they moved him in for nickel and they brought in, I think it was Antoine Blake to play on the outside. Blake technically by that definition is your nickel back, but typically your nickel back is uh, in an inside corner. I don't think the Steelers have to do that. Uh, if Pierre can show that he can play on the outside at the same time, <clears throat> you have the option of getting a little bit more physical using a safety kind of hybrid guy like Antoine Brooks in the slot, um, seeing how those guys are being used and how they're being challenged um, in, in preseason action, I think it's going to go a ways in, in kind of trying to reverse engineer what the Steelers' plan is for their secondary. And it's pretty wide open. You know, as far as what we can see, um, we don't know exactly what they're going to do. We know that Sutton was brought back. We like Sutton. Hayden's a good player. Those are your two guys. Um, they usually run three quarterbacks onto the field, though. Who's going to be the third guy and why? I think it could be all of them. I think to some degree you're going to use Pierre. I think to some degree you can use Brooks. Um, who knows as far as Justin Lane goes, if he's going to make the team or not. Uh, Shakur Brown is a guy that they, they have a lot of, of hope into. I'm not sure if he's a roster guy this year, but that's something to watch. You know, these these types of things are what I look for in, in a preseason game. It's not about um, what the Joe Hayden, if he even plays, he's going to play seven snaps. He probably isn't going to put pads on and he's going to leave. You know, that, that's not a, it's not a game for him. It's a game for the younger guys. Um I'm looking forward to that because I enjoy that level of football. I, I want to see the basics of how these guys are performing without the overhang of this is an NFL game that, that's being uh, uh, scouted. They didn't watch film to, to game plan for this. They have pretty much, you know, we're playing against the the, the Tomlin classic nameless gray faces. You know, we're, we're not worried about uh, what they're doing. We're just going to match up and, and play the game the way that we're going to play it and see what you can do. I like that level of football. Um so I, I'm looking forward to that. And then the guys that usually get the most attention are the running backs because usually they run the ball. Um, you run to make sure guys can block and tackle. That's kind of a basic essential of the game. When you get down to, to the guys at the end of your roster and your practice squad, you need to make sure they can do that. And the most of them are going to do that against for and against the run. So uh, running backs, how they're handling things. Running backs not named Najee Harris. I'm sure they're not going to play him at all. Um Let's see what they do. That that's a battle as well. You know, it, we we hate Benny Snell now that that Harris was drafted, but he's an NFL player. We're curious if if, if he's worth <laughs> keeping. Um, Jalen Samuels um, has he gotten quick at all? Did he remove the the roll the the steel rods running through his hips? Can he shake anybody anymore? Um, it, things like that. You know, I, I I enjoy again that 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 basic level of football. It doesn't need to be the the high end players for me to to enjoy seeing it. Uh, within the NFL. I like the preseason. I'm going to change my perspective because I'm doing the show with you, Neil. You you have changed me. You've made me a changed person. I'm going to actually watch preseason football. You know what? Here's the thing, Lance. Nobody knows this. I guarantee you I can fire you up about preseason football. 
It's okay. a skill that I have that's really weird that doesn't make any sense, <laughs> and I can't make any money off of it. But I get people fired up about the preseason. <laughs> I, I am going to watch some preseason football. But with that, listeners, we're going to go ahead and jump off the program. I want to thank everybody that hopped on to the chat. Big up to Carmichael Steelers fan. Haven't heard that name for quite a while. Big up to everybody that gave their comments. Big up to you, Neil, for hopping on. We have enough people in the comments now. I think we need to make a segment out of it. Yeah, we're going to jump into the comments. Absolutely. And what we'll do is, you know, since we're getting on at a a regular time, we'll try to get some comments uh, previously um, as well. Big up to Kenneth McNair Jr. Big up to him. Big up Ollie Howard Species 5618. Alaikum Salam. Big up to you, my friend. And we've got football. We've got football this week. So that means things are getting better. Um, hopefully these teams will take the pandemic seriously. It sounds that the Steelers like they are, that a lot of those players have been vaccinated. So hopefully the Steelers will not be impacted by guys being out. So hopefully get vaccinated, you know, definitely get vaccinated, protect yourself, protect those around you. And with that, we're going to get out of here. And as always tune in, tell a friend and subscribe. Go Steelers.